Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio sharing my outlook on the food world with you. There are a wealth of tastes out there, and so we tap into them all on this show. I'll share news about a small joint or a big restaurant. Need recipes for dinner for one or cocktails for 50? I have them. Do you travel miles for the perfect burrito or love a particular farmer's market? Well, I want to know. I'm all about eating and entertaining. Pretty much anything about food, drink, dining, and feeding that is tasty, innovative, intelligent, and delicious. And on this show, we are dedicated to great taste. So I hope that you'll open your mind, expand your palate, and tune in to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. I believe that food is life and you should create and savor yours, but I'm also all about health and wellness, wine and trends, giving back, and really living the best life. So I'm about to feed your soul. Don't touch your dial. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. You can find my daily dish. Plus, you'll hear radio podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes. Just search out Chef Jamie Gwen and we'll be good. All right, I kick off this show with a tutorial, a lesson, uh, a method of sorts that hopefully will make you the best cook you know, or at least the best cook in your kitchen. So let's pickle our hearts out, shall we? Uh, If you know me well, then you know I love pickles. Actually, I love anything pickled. Carrots, cauliflower, zucchini, especially red onions. And if you take a peek into my refrigerator, you will always find a mason jar of something pickled that is homemade. Now, my mom makes luscious pickles from zucchini, and so spring is the season. And I love to make pickled red onions, and I keep them on hand for burgers and pork roasts and sandwiches and cheese and meat boards and more. And I think that the pickle craze continues because the bright, often sweet, always savory snack is the perfect condiment to add that sweet, sour, zesty tang to a multitude of dishes. And in just a half an hour or less, you can have a crunchy splash of color on your dinner salad, your tacos, potato salad, sandwiches, quinoa, Sunday night roast chicken, or a grilled flank steak for that matter. And anything pickled lasts in the fridge, so you always look like a culinary hero when you pull out a condiment, right? And you say, voila. And no one knows really how truly simple they were to make. I happen to, by the way, love pickled red onions on a grilled cheese sandwich too. Had to throw that in. Now, I'm actually totally obsessed with all things pickled during the springtime because I find inspiration at the farmer's market, and I know I'm not alone. I know that you're with me. And I can tell that every culture around the world, I can tell you rather, that every culture around the world has its own traditional pickle. And they're all rooted in a need for preservation. And while we have refrigerators now, our love for pickles goes on. 
So a pickle is all about the brine, but you can mix it up and you can spice it up and you can herb it up in so many ways. And when your garden starts to overflow and the farmer's market is brimming with bright color and fiddlehead ferns and, oh, you know, little baby vegetables and sweet red onions, that's the time where you put it up, right? Or you can it to your heart's content. Now, this also applies to aging vegetables. Let's say you open up your produce drawer and you have a slightly sad cauliflower or those zucchini start to look crummy. I say pickle them. Maybe you bought a big bag of Persian or also called pickling cucumbers and your salads have had enough. You make dill pickles. Now, those tend to take a little more time, but in 24 hours, you reap the rewards of very limited labor. So yes, you can pickle it. And I thought I would share some ideas and tips to get your creative juices flowing. So first and foremost, you should consider the crunch. Because vegetables are fruits that are naturally firm, the fresher they are, the crisper they will stay. Now, as a vegetable ages, it loses its water, it becomes softer. But cauliflower, for instance, is a reasonably hard vegetable. And so even in its aging process, it seems to pickle well. Here's my best tip. You always want to trim off the stem and the ends before you pickle a vegetable um, because there are enzymes usually in the stem end of a vegetable that can often lead to a mushy pickle. I also say think small or smaller. There's no rule against pickling something whole, but it absorbs the brine faster if you cut it into pieces, especially if you peel a carrot, let's say, and cut it down the middle, that porous interior will take on the pickle brine quicker. Now you need to make the brine. It's what seasons and preserves. Without the brine, your veg will never graduate to pickle status. And um, a good one has a, a proper ratio of vinegar, salt, sugar, and water. And there is a basic and very standard formula for everything from dilly beans to tarragon pickled cauliflower. And the aromatics are where you get creative. So You'll bring one cup of distilled vinegar, white vinegar usually, although you can mix it up, uh, to a boil with two cups of water, and then it's all twos, two tablespoons of salt, two tablespoons of sugar, and two tablespoons of spices. The basic ratio is two to one, two cups of water to one cup of vinegar, and then the additions. And if you bring it up to a simmer, the sugar dissolves, the salt dissipates, And then you pour the hot mixture over vegetables in jars and you do have a pickle in some instances, as I mentioned, in 30 minutes. Now, I like to mix it up. I love rice wine vinegar, so I'll often use it in place of white vinegar. Red wine vinegar works well. If you have a big bottle on hand, you can make rosé pickles. They're so pretty. The sky is the limit. You can also add your favorite flavors like gochujang, the Korean chili paste for heat. And the powder will dissipate in the hot brine and it adds great flavor. You could make pickles Indian inspired and add curry. Ooh, curry pickled mango slices with grilled chicken for dinner, for sure. Now, to get back to those easy pickled red onions that I make very often that I love... If you don't like raw onions, the homemade pickled variety is the way to go because you get sweetness and crunch. And I peel a sweet red onion, I cut it in half, and I slice half moons, so you get onion slices. And then you could blanch the red onion briefly if you wanted to mellow the flavor. 
I use rice wine vinegar or raspberry vinegar in this place. And then um, I add a little bit of sugar. You could use agave or honey if you like. And then for the simple pickled red onions, I throw in a garlic clove, sometimes peppercorns, mustard seed, red pepper flakes, could use fennel seed. Uh, I like a piece of orange peel, sometimes fresh herb from the garden, like a sprig of rosemary or thyme, whatever tickles your fancy, really. Now, I have a bevy of recipes to brine your heart out, so you're welcome to email me. I'll share the standard brine for the perfect pickle and then some of my favorite recipes. My email address gets you to me directly. It's jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. And here's to everything pickled. Oh, how I love it. It's time for food news this week. Here's some news you can use. Oh, and some really good news, in fact. After 125 years of combining baseball with its caramel-coated popcorn, Cracker Jacks has decided to throw its own kind of change-up, in fact. The Texas-based company just announced the introduction of Cracker Jill, you go, girl. A series of five special edition bags that will depict five different women and celebrate those who break down barriers in sports. Cracker Jack is supporting women in sports, debuting Cracker Jill at pro ballparks across the U.S. They have also pledged to donate a quarter of a million dollars to the Women's Sports Foundation. And I think it's wonderful that they are supporting women and sports and take me out to the ball game as well. If you want to get your own bags of Cracker Jill, you'll be able to find them at ballparks this season, or you can actually get one by making a donation of $5 or more to the Women's Sports Foundation, which is the Billie Jean King-founded nonprofit that advocates for equality in sports. All right, I say root, root, root for that all the way. And of course, don't touch your dial because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and there is lots more fabulous food right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. As you've heard me say before, we do have the finest culinary thinkers on this show, and this gentleman is the most glorious example. It's fascinating, insightful, and thought-provoking. A number one new release, Amazon Editor's Pick, and just named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Dan Saladino's Eating to Extinction is a deep dive into the world's vanishing foods and why it matters. And oh, this is an important book. Over the past several decades, globalization has homogenized what we eat. 
of the roughly 6,000 different plants once consumed by human beings, I have learned from Dan and reading, just three of them, rice, wheat, and corn, now provide 50% of all of our calories. So the distinguished broadcaster Dan Saladino, renowned food journalist who has worked at the BBC for more than 25 years, decided he needed to let us know. He has traveled the world recording stories of foods at risk of extinction, and his work has been recognized by the James Beard Foundation, the Guild of Food Writers, and the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. And this book is extraordinary. It is a must read with tremendous praise, and I cannot tell you how grateful and honored I am to have Dan Saladino live with us. Dan, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here and congratulations on the success of the book thus far. Thank you very much, Jamie. It's great to be with you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Well-deserved praise, by the way. Um, I'll be very forthright. I'm about halfway through the book. It's captivating. And I wonder if, and maybe an inappropriate question, but albeit very honest, How worried should we be for my young son and future generations? I feel like we have to start there. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right, because on the the face of it, there doesn't appear to be uh, an emergency. Many of us are fortunate enough to be surrounded by uh, a seemingly abundance of of food and huge Mm -hmm. amounts of choice. Mm -hmm. However, I think it is future generations who we need to be thinking about, because that success story that we've built really in the last 50 or 60 years in terms of the amount, the quantity of calories we're producing has come at a cost. And that cost is uh, diversity, the uh, range of, of different food sources that we are now depending on. And you mentioned in the introduction the 6,000 plants that humans have eaten over time. Now we depend on just nine, of which just three, that's Mm. wheat, rice, and maize, uh, supply more than 50% of the world's calories. And and, and I I think of it almost as if uh, it's like an investor's portfolio, that we're putting our our future investment all into a relatively small number of... um, uh, Well, yeah, into a really tiny portfolio. Sure. Uh, and, And with diversity comes a safety net, comes, comes options, come, comes, uh, uh, you know, choices for the future. But also, um, just to finish off why this matters, that food system that we've built on a relatively small number of crops has come at a high price for the planet because of the amount of energy and chemicals it, it takes to produce those crops and also our health. And, I, you know, I think there's an argument to me made that our, our physical health has really uh, is, is starting to suffer in many cases because of the kinds of food that this that system creates. No, no doubt. I mean, we see that in uh, obesity in the U.S. We see that in the rise and the influx of food allergies, of uh, health concerns, right, of the growing number of sick I, I am fascinated to read your book because I, I do, I think about the news stories that correlate to food where we see them and, you know, they, they make you think for a moment and then we go back to our ways. I think it's so interesting that you 
relate or use the analogy of a portfolio because we know that the key word to investing is always diversify, right? But we are we we are with so many limits in the diversification as you talk about in the book of the world's food sources. I thought it was absolutely amazing to realize from your prose that the source of the world's food seeds is in the hands of four major mega corporations. That that's a monopoly, is it not? Well, it's it's certainly a, a really high concentration of power in a relatively small number of players in something that is so crucial to feeding the world. And in a sense that is just one example of many in which there's been consolidation throughout the world of various different food industries. So I also cite in that list of concentration of power that one in four beers um, around, dr- drunk around the world is brewed by one uh, major company. Obviously, it has multi- many, many different brands, but sure. it's one big company. More than 50% of the world's cheeses are made with the starter culture or the enzymes produced by one single company. So I, I, you know, I, I do think that that is a risky scenario to have when so much depends on so few. Yes. And also, you mentioned the importance of diversity, and I think the best way to illustrate that is, a, is now a relatively well-known story of the bananas, so that most of the world's globally traded bananas are one type, and that's the Cavendish. But the Cavendish is now really struggling globally in, in many parts of the world because of a fungal disease called Panama disease, or TR4, which means that once in the soil, the disease makes it impossible uh, to grow bananas of that, of that type. And again, these are effectively, think of them as clones. So okay. you take the suckers from one plant, and then they produce another um, series of plants. And so they are genetically really uniform, which we are seeing the consequences of in this disease spread of disease now it might not be as urgent in other crops but the same process is happening in the genetic uniformity because we've gone for the highest yielding plants is causing risk but we are also losing cultural um, diversity mm. we're, we're losing flavors we're losing the wonders and the beauty of food and its diversity created over thousands of years. Yes. And so that's what I'm trying to get across in the book with, by telling the stories yes. of, of endangered foods. Yes. And, and I love that you tell the stories because they give a deeper meaning to the fact that you're not just looking at the fear factor of it. It's about the culture, as you talk about, the pleasure, the history, the geography, the craft of so many of these foods and the genetic biodiversity, as you talk about, of the future of our planet depends on it. Award-winning journalist Dan Saladino is here and we're dishing more after the break. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Award-winning journalist Dan Saladino says we're eating to extinction. 
And so we're dishing on stories that matter. Go back for a moment for me, please, Dan. Talk about the threat to our health. And again, I, I, I try and use some really big um, uh, spans of time in the book. So, for example, I, you know, I refer to the three billion years in which it's taken uh, our planet to create the diversity, the abundance of, of biodiversity, as, as you say, around us. Um, and I think that needs to be remembered, how long it took for nature to create such um, genetic diversity, both in terms of plants and also animals. Um, but I also talk about the history of human beings, which, again, you can t- take different timelines there of our human ancestors, but you know, two million years, a million years, and then 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, 12,000 years of farming. And so you see that the industrial food system that we've created in just over a century, 150 years, it's a blip. And it's a, I, I, this is why I say in the book it's almost as if we're living through one big experiment. And in a sense, we've created this huge amount of calories, as I mentioned, after, particularly after the Second World War. Yes. But we don't really know where this is taking us because it's such a novel uh, experience. And our most successful lifestyle to date was as hunter-gatherers. If you look at modern hunter-gatherers, and there are the Hadza, who I visited for the book in uh, eastern Tanzania, in East Africa. Oh, the, hun- the honey. The, had- the Hadza, they, they um, use a, a bird to help them find honey in yes. trees, and yes. they have a conversation with the bird. But in terms of their diet, and honey is their number one favorite food, but in terms of their potential menu, it consists of 800 different plants and animal species. And which is absolutely, my mine comes nowhere close to that. Um, but also, when people, when when archaeologists find bulk bodies that have been preserved in certain conditions, and so you can actually look at what's inside their stomachs, we also find a huge diversity of seeds. So all the evidence points to our the success of our species over time has been dependent on a diverse diet, sure. and yet we in recent years have narrowed that down and there are many different ways in which we can think about uh, why that um, might cause ill health one is the emerging science of the gut microbiome so that's the trillions of microbes that we all host in our guts and we now know that the more diverse foods we eat the more diverse the microbes in our guts the more beneficial that is for our physical and mental health there's so much we don't know this is all so complex but diversity has been part of our food story for thousands of years. And the worry is that we, have, we are reducing that diversity. I, I think this is such important conversation. If you've just tuned in, you're late. It is a New York Times editor's pick. It is becoming a, a world-renowned piece of prose and one that is necessary to read. Uh, It's also a fascinating, fabulous read entitled Eating to Extinction. It is the new release from Dan Saladino, the BBC food journalist with 25 years of success uh, and uh, extraordinary world recording stories over all those years, bringing us information from the front lines, as I'd like to call it. I want to tell more stories. I'd like you to, Dan, but I want to take a step back. I would love to know what 
prompted you to take this deeper dive? Was it a particular story? Was it over those 25 years that you've learned so much to realize that we needed to have this conversation? I really see the starting point for my interest in particularly endangered food and food diversity uh, around 15 years ago, which is when I traveled to Sicily to make a radio program about the citrus harvest on the east side of the island, around Mount Etna. And I was there because I thought I would be telling a, a celebratory story um, uh-huh. of, of this wonderful fruit that was being picked by farmers. And I arrived and they were telling me, in some cases, it was going to be the last harvest uh-huh. um, for their small-scale family farms. And the reason being that there was so much more cheaper citrus that's coming in from up different parts of the world, including Spain. And so these Sicilian farmers whose history on the island of growing and harvesting citrus um, goes back a thousand years and it's shaped their identity it's shaped the landscape and here I was having a conversation with somebody who's saying that they were going to leave the fruit on the trees next year mm. I discovered that it was then um, being added to an online catalog of the world's most endangered foods created by the slow food movement based in Italy yes. and this contains 5,000 foods from 130 different countries. And I I started to look at this list and these little stories of different food traditions from around the world and different types of foods, and they were all disappearing. And I fell in love with these stories because each one of these foods took me to a different part of the world. It showed me how ingenious our ancestors had been as farmers Mm. and cooks, Mm. and also explained to me that there were pressures on these traditional foods And what, on the face of it, at that time, struck me as beautiful stories of food traditions. In writing the book, I really started to join the dots and realize there was a really important, big, global story to tell about how much change had happened in such a short amount of time in the way the world feeds itself and how it farms. And that's how the book came into existence. And I Mm. had to choose a relatively small number of books from the list of 5,000 documented endangered foods and in the book um, 34 specific stories and 34 chapters are there of different endangered foods yes. I could have I could have featured so many more <laughs> there, there's three more books in the works I hope because this is of the utmost importance I loved reading uh, that there is some hope in it Dan I love the story of uh, is it Murnong is that how you pronounce it mm, the the root it is, vegetable. It is of uh, Australia that is actually uh, undergoing a revival, right? So we, we see some hope. Give us, give us a story of hope, if you would. Yeah, well, that, that particular one is, is fascinating because it's right at the beginning of the book when I'm talking about wild foods and some of these ancient traditions. And in the case of Murnong, um, we know that people um, first inhabited Australia, which is where this um, root can be found, otherwise known as the yam daisy, people inhabited uh, Australia 60,000 years ago. Hmm. And it's possible that over the last 10, 20, 30,000 years, perhaps, they had a really complex and sophisticated food system in which this um, quite delicate root buried underground, uh, quite sweet tasting, uh, and it could be found across the landscape of southern Australia. It was their, one of their major sources of energy and you know it was a, it's a really good nutritious 
source of carbohydrate um, and many other nutrients as well. But unfortunately, when the Europeans arrived 300 years ago, they introduced sheep and cattle, and those animals ate their way across the landscape and pretty much decimated this wild food source for the indigenous um, Aboriginal people. And so it's a story and a theme that threads through the book of one power uh, or one culture uh, overwhelming another and displacing a, a food culture and a food system, and in fact the people themselves. But as you say, there's a, a threaded through the book are many, many positive stories. In fact, it was only possible for me to tell these stories because there was somebody out there in the world who was pretty much dedicating their working lives to saving these foods. It was a, a passion that I found in every part of the world that I traveled to. And in the case of Murnong, the Yamdezi um, chefs, uh, some of the most high-profile chefs in Australia were working with um, Aboriginal people, with community gardens, to bring back this lost plant. And for that reason, it's now back in the consciousness of people in Australia, and it's putting people back in contact with um, how people survived in Australia over thousands and thousands of years. And so who knows? It could be an important food of the future. I, I think it is so absolutely extraordinary to know of these stories, to be able to continue the conversation, to propel new conversations, to be mindful. You give insight in the book as to how we as consumers, the, the little people, can do our part to try to maintain the food system for future generations. I find that hopeful as well. I mean, there there is work we can do on even a local level where we all live, wherever it is in the world, right? To create sustainable uh, food supply for thousands and thousands of years to come. Grab a snack and come on back more with Dan Saladino eating to extinction right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Award-winning journalist Dan Saladino says we're eating to extinction. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to think that as an individual you can change yes, the isn't food system. It? Yes, isn't it? Yeah, and, we're, and we make multiple decisions today about what we buy and what we eat and what we put into our bodies. But I think together, I mentioned that um, that word in, in the conversation about Murnong, community. I think there are many, many ways in which communities can act together. Mm. Um, and in the case of um, with the Yamdezi, it really was acting as community gardens. Yeah, and uh, the where chefs I am in, in, banding in, together. In, um, in, yeah. Absolutely. And, and here I am in England where there are community orchards, for example, where yes. people are saving apple diversity. Mm. So in Victorian England, it was possible to eat an apple a day for four years without eating the same apple twice because there was that much apple diversity, which now has been has pretty much um, been reduced to five or six in most supermarkets. But there are community orchards where people are purposefully, uh, consciously um, trying to save diversity 
of apples. And so I think as individuals, we sometimes feel powerless. Uh, I think chefs actually um, can use their influence to highlight some of these ingredients. And I think chefs as storytellers are really important Mm. in communicating some of the the beautiful foods that are out there that are at risk of being lost. But as individuals, you know, we can make the right decisions about what we buy and what we eat, and we can try and make connections with farmers or uh, other food producers, but I think there's most power in acting as a community. Yes, and that responsibility is great and one that we all need to take on, no doubt. I so admire your passion, and the prose are beautiful, Dan, and it is such an important read, so kudos to you, the praise so well-deserved. Before I let you go, please tell me, what other stories are you working on? What is what is on your plate right now? <laughs> well, firstly, thanks for uh, being such a big supporter of, well, of, uh, course. of my work, Jamie, of and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you're enjoying the book. Incredible, incredible. Um, yeah, and, and I am um, still researching and learning so much about food around the world, so uh, I, I've recently been working on um, a project with scientists from the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew um, on the outskirts of London who are finding... Um, neglected plants in different parts of the world to to store away in seed banks, but also try and encourage communities to bring them back. So that's one area of research I'm looking at. I'm looking at the tragic story unfolding every day now, which is the the war in Ukraine, and I'm looking at that through the lens of food. So, Mm. you know, is it possible for people to be feeding themselves in Ukraine? Mm. Um, But also at the same time, Ukraine uh, and the Black Sea region is... um, so important as a food source for people in Africa, for people in the Middle East, um, for mm. people who are fed by the world, the United Nations World Food Program. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to explain to the people who listen to a radio program I make that actually what we are seeing unfolding is another example of the fragility of the global food system and why it is that we really need to be aware of how little it takes for our global food system to become destabilized and why diversity and having local or regional food systems um, can give us resilience for the future. So um, these these are really important stories that I'm trying to communicate. Yes. And and thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for the call to action. Thank you for the concern and the passion because it does bring all of us to the forefront of mindfulness, of your digging deep at the roots of of really where our food system lies right now and what we can do even to be uh, mindful of it, as you said, but to be enlightened to it. That's what I find the most important. It's the stories you're telling, the culture. The very least we can do, Jamie, is to know the story. Yes. And that actually, it knowledge is power, as we say, and it, oh, it really no does empower you to know the story behind our food. And oh, so for sure. that's why your work is so important mm. as well, because you are helping to communicate these stories to your audience and your great show. Well, thank you. That's my privilege. It is my great honor to have had you on the radio. And I hope, and I know there are so many stories to tell, that there will be uh, three more books in the future uh, that you will share with us on the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Uh, This is the most important read. It is entitled Eating to Extinction. Please get it, read it, 
Do Your Part, Make a Difference, written by Dan Saladino, a BBC food journalist of 25 years, an extraordinary award-winning journalist, in fact, who is changing the way we think about food, Uh, a roadmap to a food system that is healthier and more robust and richer in flavor and meaning for generations and generations to come. Uh, What an important book, Dan, and thank you for the honor of sharing it here. I truly appreciate it. It. Please stay safe and well in your journeys and, and continue to bring us insight on the food front. You are so you, valuable to, to the food system. Yeah, I, I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jamie, thank and you, to all Dan. your listeners as thank well. You. Thank, thank you. you, thank you, thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of truly delicious conversation, and I hope that you thought so. I will leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration, as I like to call it. I love coconut, just for the record. Do you? My go-to cookie at the holidays is a super simple three-ingredient macaroon. Not the French style, but rather the coconut base. Uh, You can actually air fry them if you didn't know. I share a recipe for air fried or oven baked, and then I dip them in bittersweet chocolate and... I indulge or I gift them or sometimes I crumble them over ice cream or a baked apple and sometimes I eat them for breakfast because coconut is a fruit, right? They are three-ingredient coconut macaroons. They're gluten-free, vegetarian, a snap to make, and super scrumptious. And so I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on my social pages at Chef Jamie Gwen. Please check it out and let me know how your macaroons turn out. I will meet you here next weekend when I promise lots more fabulous food. I hope you stay healthy. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. <laughs>